Please stand for the scripture reading. The scripture today is Psalm 131. In the Blue Bibles, it's on pages 298 and 299. If you do not have a Bible at home, feel free to take this one home as a gift. So Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thus says God's word. Heavenly Father, we stand before you this morning and we confess that we are a people, Lord, of, of oftentimes proud hearts, God, of hearts that um, are easily hardened to your truth, God, even to your love and to your mercy. And so we ask that you would do a work in us, Lord, to show us not just the beauty of humility, but the, God, the, the freedom that humility brings into our life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, just do a work in us today, that our ears would be attentive to your word, Lord, that we would not just assume ourselves to be beyond a need for it, beyond the reach of it, Lord, but we would hear it with ears that uh, take it in like a thirsty soul, Lord God, that is is parched and dry, Lord, that we would hear your word and, and that it would quench our deep spiritual thirst. Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, knowing that I am not immune to any of the, of the weaknesses of, of a proud heart, Lord. I am not immune to uh, seeking self-satisfaction, self-conceit, self-gratification, Lord. And so I pray that you would just uh, even before this people today, that you would humble me, Lord, and let me speak uh, clearly what your word says, the intent of it, Lord, the power of it. I pray that all of that would not be lost as it, as it, as it passes through this human vessel, Lord. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for what you're going to do. I thank you for the, for the people that you've called to be here today. And we ask your blessing on everything we do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, um, you may recall that I had a little bit of a week off. Pastor Dave uh, stood here and shared the word with you. And and uh, how many of you are so grateful for Pastor Dave? Amen. He is, uh, man, just such a blessing to our church. And, and uh, uh, a lot of times I have, you know, obviously a lot of friends that are in ministry in the pastorate. And one of their biggest complaints is that if they ever need a break or want to take a break, that they've just got no one to uh, help out. And I, I'm just telling you, we, we do not have a second string here. Pastor Dave is an incredible uh, a preacher and is always just a blessing uh, when he gets to, it's always a blessing to our whole church when he gets to stand in the pulpit. And um, uh, But what he did is he continued to look at the songs of ascent that we've been looking at for several weeks now, and he walked us through the previous psalm, Psalm 130, did such a great job. And as we have done for 11 weeks now, 
um, he progressed us through this journey, this road of faith that we've talked so much about. And specifically, uh, Pastor David did it in such a way that he led us on an upward climb from a cry to mercy to confession through a hopeful waiting and then finally arriving through Psalm 130 at a confident assurance in Jesus. And this just very naturally, as we've seen over and over through the songs of ascent, this very naturally led us into the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 131. And here we're going to discover, building on what Pastor Dave said, we're going to discover the depths of what that confident assurance in Jesus Christ produces in us. We say all the time here that you know we do not put a lot of stock in, in quick, religious decisions where someone you know prays a simple prayer and then just assumes on the basis of that prayer that 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 everything's okay that they're they're born again that they're Christians we believe that true believers although it's all a work of grace we're not talking about works here but we do believe that there is evidence when someone's truly a believer that they the true believer will change and mature with time and sometimes, granted that that is, in a moment, it's barely perceptible, and yet with time, it's consistent that people are changing and they're maturing because of the work of the Spirit within them. And this is what Psalm 131, in light of Psalm 130, this is what Psalm 131 is about. Looking back, David in this psalm acknowledges who he has become over time by clinging to God. His life is successful because he's let go of lesser things in order to attain to things that are more beautiful, more valuable, more lasting, more eternal. This psalm, however, is not just a biographical sketch of David. It's not about his spiritual life and where, where we can look at it as a, as a painting in a museum and admire it and say, wow, David, David was the man. Look at this. No, what it is, it's an alarm. It's a trumpet. It's a trumpet blast. It's a clarion call to all of us to remind us that through the gospel and through the fulfilled promises of God in Christ, we have an even greater hope we have a greater reason to hope for our sanctification and for our transformation. What I mean by that is through the gospel, you can look at your life with all of its failures, with all of its weaknesses, with all of its struggles, and you can confidently say that first, I am not today who I was tomorrow, but I will not be tomorrow who I am today. That's the hope of the gospel. The gospel is not just a, a, a religious scheme to give you some hope when you're dead. The gospel is your hope for today. It's your hope for tomorrow. And yes, it's your hope for eternity. But the, the gospel, it, 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 through all of the pages of the Bible, portrays the hope of God in making us into something new. Well, many of us have heard 2 Corinthians 5.17, a beautiful promise. Behold, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, and old things are passed away, and behold, everything has become new, and that's what the gospel tells us. So we can't simply categorize David as awesome as he was as a spiritual hero 
Because Paul tells us that all the things that were written in the Old Testament, I think we even quoted this verse a few weeks ago, tells us that all the things that are written in the Old Testament were written for our example and our instruction. And so all of us should be able, if we call ourselves Christians, we should be able to look back on our lives as we journey forward in Christ and say in an increasing degree the things that David is saying here in Psalm 131. Now, Psalm 131 is broken into three distinct movements. It starts with lowliness and humility that are on display here in David's sanctified heart. Then we move on to a will that's subdued to the mind of God. And finally, we have a hope that is looking to the Lord alone for security and for sanctification and for satisfaction, rather. And so we begin this psalm with David taking notice of the humility that has developed in him as someone who has confident assurance in the Lord. Now, throughout David's childhood, if you're familiar with the stories of David in First and Second Samuel, and then again in the in the books of Chronicles. Um, throughout David's childhood, as a shepherd over his father's flocks, he depended on the Lord to be his own shepherd. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, even non-Christians know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He depended on God to be his shepherd, and, and so much so that, that when tremendous threats came at him, when his when his sheep, his livestock, were threatened by bears and lions, he saw God deliver his sheep through his own hand. As a young adult, things were similar. David was enlisted in the army of Israel when God defeated the giant Goliath through his sling. Later on, he became a favorite of King Saul, who brought him into the palace so that David's songs and his skillful worship on his harp and lyre would soothe the king's demonically tormented soul. Later, when the king, when the, the king Saul became violently jealous and David had to flee into the wilderness to escape his wrath, God protected David and sustained him and supplied him with loyal troops who would serve him with their very lives. When David finally became king himself, as Samuel had promised him that he would many, many years earlier, God established the kingdom in David and gave him victory over all his enemies and promised him that one of his sons would always occupy the throne of Israel as the king. And this promise, of course, would find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. But what I want you to see from David, this this little quick sketch of David's life, is that the common thread running through all of the events of David's life, things that in the immediate moment we'd call good, defeating Goliath, and things in the immediate moment that we'd call bad, that that, uh, he's running from a wicked king, all of those things... And and the thread through all of them in David's life is the grace, the favor, and the intervention of God. Now, and the question that I want to ask you, because I already told you, this is not just about the history of David's life, but if you look back on your own life, can you, you, I mean, you look back from the earliest childhood to this very moment in time, can you say the same thing, that the common thread flowing through your life is the grace, 
the favor and intervention of God. Can you look back on all of your successes and all of your good times and say, man, I see the hand of God in that. Can you look back on the times that were terrible and you thought you weren't going to make it and you thought you were going to die, but now with some hindsight, you say, man, God was in that. Can you do the same thing? Are you aware of the many ways that God has preserved you and sustained you? Can you trace the working of His hand through all of your days? Well, grace like this affected David. It affected his thinking. It affected his outlook. He says in the first verse of our psalm today, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Dane Ortland calls the heart the animating center of all we do, the motivational headquarters of our life. A sinful because of that, it's true of everybody, believer or unbeliever, that, that our heart is the animating center of what we do and our motivational headquarters of our life. Uh, a sinful, unregenerate heart, because of that, can only be a fountain of pride. And pride, because we all start in that state, that's the, that's the common starting place of all of our lives, is pride and, and self-concern. Because of that, pride is only defeated and it's only displaced from within us by gospel humility, or, or better said, the humility that the gospel brings. So think again about David's life. During long nights in, in darks, under dark skies in the pasture, in intense battles, in that season of running for his life, David learned not to trust in himself. He says it all through the Psalms, but he trusted in God. And so here he is writing Psalm 131, and how foolish would David had to have been to ponder all that he's been through, all the deliverances that, he, that the Bible lays out for us, that God brought about for, for David, and to list all of those things, and to take credit for himself for each deliverance and for each mercy. And that should be like kind of a, a wake-up call for us because we have the same temptation. We look at things that happen where we are delivered or rescued and we'll either sometimes attribute it to either our own skill in the process or to luck. And what an insult that is to a God of mercy who delivers us every day. The Bible says that deliverances belong to God every day. Every single day, you have never rescued yourself out of a pit. If you've been rescued out of a pit, it was because of the merciful hand of God that rescued you. And so how foolish would he be? But David, thank God, does not do this. Instead, he humbles himself into the dust, gratefully worshiping his faithful God. He does not lift up his heart in pride. He bows before the only one who deserves any credit. Jesus affirmed the, the goodness of this decision in Matthew 23 when he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Isaiah 14 records the boasting of the king of Babylon. And it's so intense and so wicked that many theologians even attribute it to what Satan might have said when he fell from heaven. But he says this, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. So the king of Babylon, what was 
his animating center? What was the motivation? What was his motivational headquarters? It was self. It was to defy the God who created him and even gave him his kingdom. But this was not so with David. David was, as the Beatitudes say, poor in spirit. David, an incredibly blessed man, an incredibly wealthy man, an incredibly powerful man, never understood those things, his wealth, his power, his strength. He never saw those things as things that were of his own origin or things that belonged to him. Instead, he was poor in spirit, as Jesus described it. And those who know that they have nothing except what they've been given from above are blessed. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Look over your life today. Take inventory of everything of which you might be proud, of everything that you might be excited, of everything you might take credit for. And are you realizing that you got nothing except what was given to you from above? Christ declares of these kind of people Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jeremiah reminds us that our hearts are deceitful above everything else. And think about that. Now, now, let me just take a quick poll here, as I often do. Raise your hand if the word of God is absolutely, 100%, undefiably, unchangeably true. Raise your hand. Pretty much agree with that? Okay, good. Vast majority of you believe that, and you're right. Then how foolish is the advice that we often hear? If the, if the Bible says that the heart is the most deceitful thing of all, more deceitful than anything, how foolish is the advice that we always get from our friends and from the world that says, follow your heart. Now, if your heart is the most deceitful thing above all other things, how foolish would it be to put all of your trust in your hopes and dreams and the impulses of your heart. Paul would tell you that that's terrible advice because he says in Romans 7, 18, for I know, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can anybody woefully raise a hand and say, I I agree with Paul here? The transforming work of God is required for our hearts to truly change. So how do we examine ourselves in order to know that our hearts, like David, are not lifted up? Well, the way we do it is that we get honest about what our eyes are looking at and what we are often occupied with. Psalm 131, verse 1, the second part of it says, My eyes are not raised too high. Now, what does that mean? Simply this, that your eyes, either your natural eyes or your emotional, spiritual eyes, will always look to what the heart desires. Have you found that to be true? See, David, when he was king and and good and bad, or before he was king even, good and bad were happening to him, he didn't look to places where he could gratify his self-esteem or feel superior to other people. Where and so, if we think about that, where did he? Where do we look? One of the great stories to illustrate this about David's life is once when his son Absalom had 
tried to wrest the kingdom from his hands and have this coup where he took over the kingdom from his father David. David had to escape Jerusalem for his own safety, for his own life. And, and the, the, the nation was kind of split. Some people were for David, some people for Absalom. And during this time, as he's leaving Jerusalem, this, this foolish man named Shemi met him on the road and he met him for the sole purposes of literally throwing rocks at the king and cursing him. And his servants, who were there to protect David, his bodyguards, were furious at this. They were furious at this display, and they asked David, Hey, David, please, 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 let us take this guy's head off. This will not be a problem for us, David. Let us show him this is not the way you talk to the king. They wanted to strike him down for this act of irreverence, for this act of disrespect. But watch this, David wondered aloud in the hearing of his servants if Shimei's curses were ordained by God for his own discipline. Wow. What kind of humility does that take? He wouldn't let his men kill the man who insulted him even though he was the king. And imagine that. His eyes weren't lifted too high. He wasn't saying, look, I know who I am, sucker, and you're going to pay for this. No. He said, everything I do, everything my life is about is subject to God. So if this guy's cursing me right now, God must have a hand in it. And this is a beautiful type of Christ's humility. As the king, as foolish, wicked men on this earth assaulted him and insulted him, what did he do? What did he do? He submitted to it. He said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He had realized, like David, that this persecution had been ordained by God for a greater, greater good. Beautiful type of Christ's humility. David's eyes weren't on his throne or on his position, but they were on God alone. Jesus talks about this idea of our eyes. He says, the eye of the, of the, uh, I'm sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if your eye is focused on that which is good and holy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? See, what you're gazing at, what you're longing for with your eyes, either physically or spiritually, determines the character of your heart. But we also discover much about our heart by looking at how we occupy ourselves. David says in verse 1 again, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. In other words, that's a simple way to say that, that he wasn't working for his own will. He was working for what pleased God. Uh, twice, when David was running from Saul, he had an opportunity to assassinate the wicked king and put it into all his troubles. But guess what? He refused to do it. He said, how could I lay a finger on the Lord's anointed? He didn't trust his strength or his cunning or even his opportunity to become king. He trusted in the Lord's promise. David, you will be king. He trusted in the Lord's promise. But more than that, he trusted in the Lord's timing. Man, what a lesson that is to us. See, many times we measure success in terms of money 
in terms of charm, in terms of popularity, in terms of wisdom or beauty. And so we work hard with our all of our energy to attain those things and give ourselves a sense of worth. If I have money or beauty or charm or popularity, then I think, okay, now I have worth. And so I'll make sacrifices. And, I, and, and when I make a little headway, I boast in my accomplishments. But see, God measures success not in terms of attainment, but in terms of faithfulness. No matter what you're starting with, God is looking for faithfulness. He doesn't want us to try to game some system in order to win an advantage over others. What He wants from us is to learn to trust and obey Him no matter what. This is the conclusion, by the way. Sometime this week, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. You can do it in an hour or so. And read through it. This is the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. It looks at all this thing, these things that the preacher attained and wealth and, and, and success and, and, and leisure time and all these things. And he said it was all vain. But at the very end, he makes this conclusion that the, the, the idea is to remember his creator. In Jesus's, let me demonstrate this from Jesus's parable. In Jesus's parable of the talents, uh, you know, you have these three servants. Talents are, are measurements of money. And one is given ten talents. One is given five talents. One is given one talent. And, and no one in that story ever said, well, why am I getting five when the other guy got ten? Or why am I getting one when the other guy got five? Nobody's doing that. None of them were even judged by the size of their returns. None of them were judged. Uh, uh, the first two guys doubled their profit. No one was judged by it. They were both rewarded just for the work that they did. They were, they were judged for the, what they did with what they had. They weren't judged by the size of their returns, but they were judged by the, uh, by the faithful or unfaithful stewardship of what was entrusted to them. It wasn't based on their speculation, their self-conceit, or their opinions. Why is that important? Because some of us have missed years of fruitful labor in the kingdom of God because we're a one-talent person and we're just wondering why we're not ten-talent people. And so what we're doing is we're burying that one talent. We're occupying ourselves with things much too high for us, trying to figure out why this is that way or that is this way, and and we just will not take what God has given us the jobs that we have where we are, the families that we have where we are, and put them to work for God's kingdom and be faithful in them. See, we counter as Christians the secular culture with the gospel by refusing to grasp anything less than more of Jesus. The only thing we should be grasping for is more and more of Jesus. Amen? Charles Spurgeon said this. I love this quote. I'm not going to let Pastor David outdo me. He quoted Spurgeon last week, so I'm going to do it this week. Spurgeon said this. Listen carefully. Many, through wishing to be great, have failed to be good. They have not been content to adorn the lowly stations which the Lord appointed them, and so they have rushed at grandeur and power and have found destruction where they looked for honor. May we depend on Christ alone. Not on our talents, not on our intellects, not on our resumes, not on our connections. May we submit joyfully and obedient, obediently to the timing and the discipline of the Holy Spirit so that we might be found faithful, having humbled hearts, 
healthy eyes, and occupied with laboring for the master with all of our might. In verse 1, David shows us, as we just discussed, how he dealt with pride. But the Puritan Thomas Manton sees two sides to this coin. He said, it is not enough to avoid pride, but we must study to excel in humility. In verse 2, David poetically describes what walking in humility is like. Listen to this. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with, his mo- with its mother, like a weaned child is, child is my soul within me. David calms and quiets his soul. And in Hebrews, this is stated strongly as a vow or an oath. It's almost like he's saying, I swear to calm and quiet my soul. David solemnly took command of his soul, requiring its silence. He ordered his own soul to be tranquil. And he demanded that his soul should patiently bear the cross that has been divinely imposed upon him by God. Now, in our society, we're trained to accept everything we feel as completely valid simply on the basis that we feel it. In other words, we assume that what we feel is real because we feel. But feelings can be deceptive. Feelings can be malicious. The Bible tells us to take every thought captive and to be mature in our thinking. Thoughts must often be crucified, not comforted, and not coddled. And we have a divine right to speak with God's authority to our wandering souls, our wandering thoughts, and bring them back to submission to Christ. The greatest example of this in the Scripture is Psalm 42.11, where David speaks to his soul and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? What's wrong with you? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why does he say that? Because the, the command to his soul is hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, whatever David was going through when he wrote this, it would be a whole different Bible if he'd said, well, life stinks, and so here we are. This is where we're going to have to be. No! He told his soul that his soul was not responding rightfully in worship to the faithfulness and goodness of God. And how would... All of our week, mine included, how would our week be different if we committed just to do this thing? That every time we feel that we're, we're, we're you know, getting the short end of the stick, we're persecuted, life is terrible, and we're never going to make it, and all this stuff, we just said, hey, what's wrong with you, soul? Why are you thinking like this? Put your hope in God. Because I will again praise Him. He is my salvation. He is my God. David's description of the result of his calming and quieting of his soul was that he was like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, he says, is my soul within me. Throughout Scripture, we are often portrayed as children having God as our Father. In other places, he pictures himself with more maternal characteristics. A great example of this, Isaiah 66, 13, he says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. But why does David describe himself 
not just as a child with God, tenderly loving him as a mother would, but as a weaned child. Why is there this modifier? And, and what are we weaned from? What similarities did David see in his life and the life of a weaned child? Well, the benefit of biblical humility, which we're talking about today, is that it weans us from self-sufficiency, self-will, self-seeking, from creatures and things of the world, from the riches, the honors, the pleasures, the profits of it, as well as from human nature, from self, and from our own righteousness and all of our dependence upon it. That's what humility breaks the shackles of all of that garbage on us and lets us truly be free. We have to be weaned Because it's all of these things that I just listed that we most naturally desire, just like a baby desires the breast. Those are the things that we most naturally desire. But the gospel, you see, frees us from slavery to these things. And, And gospel humility is the proof that we are really free. Now, moms, you can confirm this, but weaning a child can be a loud, uncomfortable, and messy process. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of crying. Why is that? Because this child who's had several months of trained to one thing doesn't get what it most wants or most naturally desires. Yet it's not unloving of a mother to withhold what the child desires. She's assisting the child as it grows to maturity and by insisting that it gets necessary nutrients from the proper source. Children are by necessity dependent. They don't decide what they're going to eat. They don't decide what they're going to drink. They don't decide what they're going to wear. If they did, your children would eat nothing but French fries and cotton candy. They would drink only soft drinks and chocolate milk. They would wear only Disney princess gowns and Spider-Man costumes. But such a child would eventually be mocked and would be incredibly unhealthy. And the world today is filled with such unhealthy people who can neither be taken seriously nor are in any way healthy. And if you're thinking when I say that of bizarre examples from social media or from culture, you should realize that the the much greater problem than some weirdo on Facebook, the much greater problem is immature, lowest common denominator baby Christians. People who should be leading in the body and still are on the breast. That's the bigger problem. The writer of Hebrews saw this clearly. He said, "For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the power, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Simply believing in Christ does not mean that you've been weaned from the world. Listen, you can 
you can get up here, you can get on Facebook, you can do whatever you want, and you can rant and rant and rant about worldliness on public display. You can talk about how bad it is in the media and the government. But if in your private moments you embrace what you, uh, you, uh, what you embrace as well as what you reject, it uh, speaks loudly. It tells whether you are a wean child or a mature son in the house or daughter in the house doesn't matter what you say loudly. It matters who you are privately. Charles Bradley said, It's one thing to be angry with the world and ashamed of it, and another thing to be weaned from it. A weaned child is ready. It's been prepared to forgo what is most liked, what is most favorable to it, and take whatever is given to it. Weaning doesn't involve the destruction of the appetite, but the controlling and the changing of it. It's not like a child's never going to be hungry anymore. It's not like you're never going to feed the child anymore. You're just going to feed the child different things and develop new appetites in the child. A weaned child still hungers, but it hungers no more after the food that it once delighted in, and it is quiet without it. If your child's 14 years old and still crying for the breast, something's critically wrong. Something's really, really screwed up, and we need to get... Please come talk to me this week. (laughs) Also remember that no child weans itself. No one has ever had a one-year-old who came and said, Mom, I think it's time to knock this off. You know, we got to do something different here. No child does that. But the child must be brought to and through the the painful process of weaning by a mother who loves him. And who only has his best interests in mind. And it's not the child's work alone. The mother must be committed to see it through. And when we think about God with this tender maternal nature, that can make us really joyful about the process of our own weaning. Paul said to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Humility is complete when we trust the Lord to give us what is for our best, be it success or failure, blessing or suffering, and we no longer cry like babies for what is more appealing to our selfish and worldly tastes. And may we, as the people of God, learn to trust Him and to feed on Him, and may we find our delight in Him as with the richest affair. Verse 3 shows us how that when we abandon our pride and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, our concerns shift from ourselves alone to the others around us. This verse in this psalm seems almost out of place. He talked about, I've humbled my heart, uh, you know, I, I'm like a weaned child. And then he says this to, in, the, in the, uh, the psalm, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth, and forevermore. Now, what's the one thing that is not mentioned in this verse? Himself. Verses 1 and 2 only had personal pronouns. My, I, me. But now that his heart is subdued, he sees Christ crucified for the whole church, and his heart breaks for all the people of God to know God as intimately as he does. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. A nursing baby will cry loudly to be fed and never give a second thought to how hungry or tired you might be. Amen, Gabriel? (laughs) 
Never give a second thought. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, what time of night it is. If they're hungry, the demands start coming regardless of others' needs. But a mother or father or a mature person has no such luxury. They must sacrifice whatever is necessary for the benefit of the child. And they do it with glad and with grateful hearts because they wouldn't trade anything at all for the love they have and the joy they have in that child. Mature people in the body of Christ call other people to maturity. They see others grumbling and complaining about the quality and the temperature of the food that's being served in fellowship and in sermons, and they say with maternal tenderness, hey, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. And my prayer is that we, all of us, will increasingly be a people who slay our pride, because we're all victims of it, who develop humility, and who call our brothers and sisters to do the same. May we be content with what the Lord serves us, knowing that He loves us, and that He has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Would you stand with me? As I often ask you to do, I just want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a moment to to just ask the Lord where a message like this might be applicable to you. Where what is he wanting to tell you? It's you know it's it's meaningless if you sit here for 40 minutes and I say a few words and 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 you don't let the Lord just kind of do something transformative in your heart. What is where is your heart lifted up? Where are your eyes looking too high? What are you occupied with right now? What do you need to be weaned from? How much of an appetite do you have for solid food versus milk right now? How much is your concern driven by the benefit of the body of Christ, the people of God, versus your own demands, your own desires, your own uh, you know, idolatry of the way things ought to be. What is the Lord saying to you right now? Let me give you a little hint. He's probably not saying, do this. What he's probably saying is, trust me here. He's not telling you to make a whole new slew and list of vows. He's telling you, just trust him. The first step to gospel humility is just opening your grip letting things go, and then clinging to Jesus with all of your might, realizing that he is all you need and the only thing that's going to satisfy you. Give him a few seconds and let him point some things out to you. If you need someone to kind of walk you through some things, maybe even an opportunity to make some confessions, we'll give you that. You can come talk to me or Pastor Dave after service, but just don't be afraid of what the Lord's trying to touch in your heart right now. Because I guarantee you there's many in this room that the Lord is trying to put his finger right on something that you are, your first impulse is, and and you know how you know that? Is if you're just making excuses, oh, it's not that bad. I don't do that all the time. If you're, if you're doing that, then, man, there's something the Lord wants to put his finger on. So let him do it. This isn't to 
humiliate you and shame you. It's to bring you freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let him do his work. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here today, Lord. And I thank you that you are a God who has for freedom set us free. God, you've set us free from the tyranny of the things that we think are so important, the things that we feel like we have to pursue with all of our might, the competitive nature that has to keep up with the Joneses. Lord, we, we just admit that you're better than those things, and we confess our failure in those areas, Lord, that we have tried to be people that you have, God, that, that you have called us to be free from. God, we confess in many ways that we have violated the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. Lord, we can look around our feet and see all kinds of tiny plastic gods, meaningless, vain things that have no hope of of eternity. And Lord, we just confess those things and ask that you would help us to smash our idols today and turn to you trust in you, and to be free in you. Wean us from the things, Lord, that we so often cry out for, demand, irregardless of others. Help us, Lord, to be free. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction from First Peter to you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.